Uh, tonight we are starting uh, a brand new Sunday evening service that's going to run from now right through until Easter. Uh, and I'd like to take a little bit of time right at the beginning to kind of explain the title more than a comma. Incidentally, and I'll not mention any names, but I did overhear someone saying more than a coma. What's that all about? Uh, it, it's more than a comma. Okay, One letter makes all the difference in the world. Uh, but there are a few reasons why I want us to look at this together. If you were here on Sunday nights during November, uh, David McMillan took us through a series called Just Peacemaking. Uh, it was a really good series and provided lots of food for thought. But one of the phrases that David used, and he was quoting Tom Ryder N.T. Wright from his latest book, How God Became King. But the phrase that David used was this, the missing middle. And a lot of uh, what David shared with us regarding the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount was kind of directly related to this term and this phrase. And the missing middle actually refers to the life of Jesus. You see, sometimes there is a tendency to rush from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus. From Christmas to Easter. And David used this slide during the first week of his series to kind of illustrate that, that idea. Saying that sometimes we forget about or we sort of rush past the 33 years in between. And I must admit, this kind of really got me thinking. You see, I know it is absolutely vital to ask and explore questions like, why did Jesus die? So important to ask and explore that question. But it's also important to ask, why did Jesus live? Why did he live? What about the middle bit between the manger and the cross. What about that short period of intense and exciting public activity at the latter end of his life from about the age of 30 to 33? What what truth can we learn from that? Why did it have to be like that? Does it matter that Jesus said all those things in those three years? Does it matter? Does it matter that Jesus did all those things, was all those things... Would it have made any difference if, as the virgin-born Son of God, he had been plucked from total obscurity and crucified at age 30, dying for our sins, without any of what happened in those three years happening? It's an interesting question. What are we to do with, or what are we to make of all the material that's recorded in the four Gospels that relates exclusively to the life of Jesus. Can you become a Christian? Can you be a Christian and yet neglect the life, teaching and example of Jesus? Who actually made it clear that if you were going to be his disciple, you've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. So David's series and this phrase set my mind racing. Then, during November, I, I also attended a conference. It, it was held at Ballinhinch Baptist Church, but it was run by Irish Baptist Networks and the Centre for Contemporary Christianity in Ireland. 
And one of the speakers who was there on that Friday touched briefly on this whole issue of the life of Jesus. And he offered a few comments and then he moved on to what he was really there to kind of speak about. But I latched on to something that he said. And he referred to the import, as he referred to the importance of the life of Jesus, bearing in mind all the incidents and teachings that we encounter in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, he flagged up something that I'd never really noticed before. And it relates to the two of the most famous creeds of the Christian church and the Apostles' Creed in particular, which we as a church did work our way through a few years ago on Sunday evenings. But whenever you come to the Apostles' Creed, when it speaks of Jesus, it reads something like this. Or it doesn't read something like this. It does read like this. And I know lots of you are really familiar with the Apostles' Creed, but here's what it says. I believe in Jesus Christ. God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then he said something that shook my word. He said this. Did you notice that the life of Jesus is reduced to a comma? That all 33 years of Jesus' life are passed over. In this doctrinal statement. Everything he did. Everything he taught. And as all his wisdom. Passed over by punctuation. The world's greatest life. Reduced to a comma. As I prepared for this evening. I came across this quote. Wouldn't it be tragic. If such a tiny bit of punctuation. Like a comma. Would actually have kept millions of people. Through the ages of history from living like Jesus, from seeing Jesus as our ultimate model and example, the way, the truth and the life, the one who introduced the God whose ways lead to true life and radical transformation. Now, I know there is a sense of being slightly provocative here, okay? And a number number of you have been smiling at me at various points, and I'm not quite sure how to take that, but anyway... uh, And and there may even be some people who are a little bit anxious about where this might be going. Are we in danger of heading down a more liberal track and approach to Jesus? Are we more interested in his life than in his death? Am I in any way trying to downplay the sacrifice of Jesus? Well, listen, please hear me on this. Absolutely not. And I hope nobody will kind of go away from this evening thinking that in any shape or form. The purpose of this new series, More Than a Comma, is to spend some time revisiting the life of Jesus. That's really what I just want to do for the next number of Sunday evenings. To journey again through a section of one of the Gospels as the writer records the events, the sayings, the encounters, the miracles, the downtime, the friendships... The exchanges, the wisdom and the behaviour of Jesus and also as they record the reaction to Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to engage with one of those gospel writers and it's Luke. We we haven't done a series in the gospels for quite some time here at Windsor. I I remember I think the first year I was here we we kind of worked our way through Mark's gospel. But we haven't really done a series in in the gospels for about three years. And, And so we're rectifying that or putting that right by heading through Luke. But listen, this is not an attempt to reproduce a history of Jesus. That's not what I'm I'm wanting to do. It's not about a history of Jesus. Rather, it's to give testimony to Jesus. Please hear that. 
and then to reflect further on his life. The missing middle, recognizing and affirming that it amounts to far more than a comma. Far more. Incidentally, and, and this is just kind of all by way of introduction, but there's, there's quite a bit of interest these days and has been for quite a while now in trying to construct and reconstruct the historical Jesus. That's not what this series is about. And anyway, as William Willimon says, apart from just one dismissive uh, reference by the disreputable Josephus, Jesus made no impact on ancient historians. Most of what we hanker to know about Jesus is beyond historians' reach. The yield from two centuries search for the real Jesus has been disappointing. I find delicious irony in the fact that Jesus changed the course of history but was ignored by the historians of his day. Historians tended not to care about Galilean peasants who neither wrote books or led armies. So, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4? It's page 1030 in the, the Pew Bibles. And we're going to join Jesus. We're going to join this Galilean peasant just after his public and very dramatic baptism. And again, as we often do here at Windsor, uh, we're going to stand for the public reading of God's words. Let's stand together. It, incidentally, for those who kind uh, of do really you know, digest Buzzline and read the website, I think it says I'm going to cover like the first, is it 30 whatever verses? We're only going through the first 13. Okay? I ran out of time during preparation and my word count was all used up. Okay? So here we go. Verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdom of kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, Jesus answered. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished each temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Please God. For those, uh, for those who have been following our, our Sunday morning series on Moses, there, there are real echoes here of, of Israel in Exodus. Let me just kind of make a few connections. The Israelites came through the Red Sea, then spent 40 years in the wilderness. During that time, they complained about bread or lack of it, flirted disastrously with idolatry, constantly put God to the test. Here in Luke 4, Jesus comes through the waters of baptism at Jordan, spends 40 days in the wilderness, and now faces genuine temptation regarding bread, worship, and potentially putting God to the test. Just an interesting comment in passing. 
And the additional fascinating thing is that whenever, and I'm just trying to kind of connect the two morning and evening series, the additional fascinating thing is that whenever Jesus quotes scripture those three times in response to the three temptations, the passages he draws from are from the story of Israel in the wilderness. But in terms of those connections, there's one massive difference. Jesus succeeds where Israel fails. So let's look a little closer at this, I know, reasonably well-known incident. And let's see what we can take tonight and learn from the life of Jesus. Part of the missing middle. See what we can apply to ours. Well, right up front, Luke makes it clear, if you look at first, first, first verse, that Jesus is full of, filled with, and led by the Spirit. And as Christians, that should immediately connect. And do you know why? Because it's our story. Somehow every single Christian here this evening is mysteriously indwelt by the Spirit of God. And led by the Spirit of God. Directed and guided. So if you're a Christian here tonight, you can immediately make connections with Jesus. Trouble is that being full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit sometimes means that like Jesus, you find yourself in a tough place. Barren places. Lonely places. Hostile environments that tend to leave you vulnerable to attack and temptation. That just goes with the territory of being full and led by the Spirit. The next thing that Luke draws our attention to is the humanity of Jesus. Is he, is he just makes, and I want to make these connections. Look at verse 2. He tells us Jesus was hungry. It's a simple little phrase, but yet a profound phrase. If you look at the previous chapter, I don't have time to do it, but if you just glance across to the previous chapter, you can see that Luke has gone out of his way to kind of give us the family tree of Jesus. And he traces him right back to Adam. He is a descendant of Adam, the first man. And therefore, what Luke is telling us is that Jesus, as he experienced genuine hunger pangs, please note, he's one of us. He's fully human. Now he's also fully God. But he is fully human. And therefore, again, we can relate. And he can relate to us. The enemy of Jesus, who's also our enemy, he wastes no time in recognizing the vulnerability of Jesus. And so he sees this as an opportune moment to strike and he rolls out the first of his three temptations and says, listen, turn a stone into a loaf of bread. Come on, satisfy your hunger. You're only human. Then, worship me and I'll give you so much, Jesus, in terms of power and status if you'll just worship me. And finally, throw yourself off the top of this building and no doubt you'll be divinely and dramatically rescued start with there's something incredibly helpful about the discovery at least for me that Jesus knows what it's like to face extreme temptation that actually 
He knows what it's like to face the pressure to compromise. And later on in the New Testament, one writer picks up on this thought whenever he says, listen, Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. Now I know some people have a real problem with that phrase and that idea. But he was tempted in every way just as we are. And so Jesus is not immune to where you're at and to what you're going through. And although we're never going to be tempted in exactly the same way as Jesus was, the reality is that every Christian will be tested and stretched. And therefore we can all relate. We can all make connections to Jesus in these moments. The temptation to go in a certain direction. The temptation to buy into a particular line of thinking. Entertain less than helpful thoughts. Compromise who you are. Compromise what you believe. Those are virtually everyday experiences. Well, at least they are for me. And I've no doubt they are for many of you. And therefore, as we observe Jesus here, and as we discover how he reacted, surely it's going to help me. Surely it's going to help you. Surely it's going to help us wrestle with what is a common issue. So let's look at how Jesus responds. Now some kind of response to temptation is is always necessary. You can never ignore it. But Jesus responds not by attempting to do what we often do, which is argue. Jesus doesn't argue with the enemy. As one commentator writes, arguing with temptation is often a way of playing with the idea until it becomes too attractive to resist. You see, the thing about temptation is by its very nature, it's attractive. It's appealing. It offers something that seems reasonable, that seems alluring, that seems enticing, that seems seductive. And therefore, when it comes to temptation, the tendency we have is that we'll at least give it a decent hearing. We'll toy about with the idea. We'll, We'll consider it for at least a moment. Jesus doesn't do that. He responds immediately on each occasion by quoting scripture. It takes more than bread to keep you alive. The Lord your God is the one you must worship. He's the only one you must serve. And you must not put your God to the test. Now you can argue all you like that quoting scripture seems relatively tame. A very simple response, surely, to temptation and the subtle approaches of the enemy, is it not? Just quote scripture. But what you cannot deny from this desert encounter is that the enemy appears to have backed down every single time Jesus used that tactic. The fact is that each time Jesus quoted God's word, the enemy sulked away. Look at verse 13. When When the devil had finished each temptation... He left him. You see, it seems that God's word is what it says it is. Powerful. Living. Dynamic. Active. It is a weapon. It's a sword. And therefore, what we learn from these moments is the importance of using God's word as a rapid response to each and every temptation that you and I face. Just... Kind of by the way, the Bible goes on to provide further advice regarding how you deal with temptation. And so, 
there's that essential advice we come across in Ephesians chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And one of his most earliest schemes is temptation. So, so there is quoting scripture but there's also this whole idea of what, what does it actually mean to put on the armour of God. But that's a whole separate thing. Back to Jesus' response. Here where he just recites scripture. What I sometimes find is people say but, but I struggle to remember scripture. I struggle to learn it. I struggle to store it in my memory and I absolutely struggle to know when to recall it at the right moment. There's lots of people who know it. But for me, this is not just about learning portions of scripture off by heart, important and impressive and all that that is. The core issue here is a regular and a consistent engagement with God's word. So that although daily temptation is a persistent feature of our lives, so is reflecting on God's word. And therefore, that enables me to filter temptation appropriately and effectively. What I find is that if I go for long periods of time without engaging with God's word on a regular basis, I really do struggle. So I don't think it's just about memorising and quoting. It's about engaging. It's about recognising that, yep, you know something? We don't live in bread alone, but on every word that comes out of God's mouth. Jesus ruthlessly deals with temptation. But those of you who have got the Bible in your ear, you'll notice that I didn't actually finish verse 13 a moment ago. Because you see, no matter how many times you ruthlessly deal with it, No matter how many times you engage with God's word and filter temptation through it and filter how you're doing through it, the devil doesn't go away. When the devil had finished each temptation, he left him, and then how does it finish? Until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. You see, that particular day was drawn to a close in the life of Jesus. Those temptations have been dealt with for now. But as we all know, the enemy will be back. The thing is, temptation is a, is a regular feature of life. And so I need to get used to it. But I need to deal with it in the way Jesus did and using his example. As we look at the, uh, the three specific responses of Jesus, I just want to make a few other comments about the implications of his reaction to the devil on each occasion. Because again, there is so much to learn just in even those three ways that Jesus responds. To start with, have a look at his response to the stone and the bread temptation. Because what Jesus does here is he makes it clear that although physical needs and wants are important, I mean, man does not live in bread alone, so Jesus is not saying these things are not important. Physical needs and wants are important, but there is more to life. Jesus is actually quoting from Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone. How does that finish? Yeah. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So though physical needs and wants are important, loyalty to God and his word are even more important. Which is a real powerful lesson to take on board. You see, whenever the sort of material, visible, tangible things in life eclipse and overshadow the spiritual, eternal and unseen things, we're in danger of missing the point. So we kind of think, you know, we just live 
on the tangible material alone. But we don't. Those things are important, but loyalty to God and his word are far more important. We need to keep the physical, tangible, material world in proper perspective. And sometimes what happens in so many of our lives, and self-included, we become so kind of preoccupied by what we see, the stuff around us, and we lose sight of the bigger picture. Secondly, the next response to the second temptation is also deeply challenging because status and power are incredibly appealing. The devil knows that all too well and so he offers Jesus a once in a lifetime unique opportunity to get status and power really, really quickly and via a certain route. He says, listen, see if you just worship me, I'll give you all of this. See if you just kind of go my way, do my thing, I'll give it all to you. I've never really been able to get my head around the whole idea of how the devil had the authority and the ability to say this is all mine and I can give it to you. And that's not what I'm even going to try to attempt to deal with. But somehow he says, listen, see if you will worship me, Jesus, I'll give you all of this. And as Jesus responds, you discover two things that I don't believe we should ever forget based on the life of Jesus. The first is that the primary focus of our worship has got to be God Almighty. There's such a temptation to worship other gods. And yet, right at the heart of our faith is a call and a command to love God with our heart, soul, strength, mind. Everything we've got, God has got to preoccupy. God has got to take precedence. It's got to be number one in our lives. And Jesus here is reminding the enemy and reminding us that, listen, God desires and deserves to be the object of fully committed worship. Don't let anything else get in the way. But secondly, Jesus also stresses that service lies at the core of his calling. Verse 8. God is the only one you must serve. You see, throughout his life, Jesus emphasized and modeled the importance of service. And in terms of being great, and in terms of having status, Jesus' explanation of the path towards those things were always alternative and countercultural. In fact, what Jesus said is, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, then you've got to be last. You've got to be a servant to all. That's the way Jesus lived. That's the way he lived his life. And as such, that is the prime example for us and how we should live our lives. We worship God and we serve. And finally, in the last temptation, as we listen to the response of Jesus, there's almost a sense of being reminded, listen, trust God, don't test him. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Jesus knew that his father loved him and cared for him. Without having to prove that by trying to get God to perform some spectacular yet forced rescue mission. Throw yourself off here, Jesus. Your father will look after you. Do you trust him? Put it to the test. Jesus said, no. I trust my father. Don't need to put him to the test. And for us, there's huge lessons there, I think. Do we need to check sometimes, is God trustworthy? Does he want what's best for me? Does he really love me? Does he really care about me? Is he really interested in what I'm going through? 
And we kind of lose that, you know, that proverb that's often quoted, trust in the Lord with all your heart. I know what you've said, God. But I need some further evidence and something spectacular would be great. So four things. Loyalty to God and his word are vital. Wholehearted worship of God and God alone is essential. Service is the pathway to true status and recognition. And you can trust God without having to test him. After his baptism. Back to verse 1. It says, Jesus returned from the Jordan filled with the Spirit. After his temptation, look at verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. After his baptism, a high moment power of the spirit after the temptation a low moment power of the spirit in all of life's experiences Jesus was filled and empowered by the same spirit who empowers and fills those of us who follow him today and there are some here and you're experiencing spiritually high moments and there's others who are going through spiritually draining challenges But as we engage with and learn from the life of Jesus, we find encouragement, we find hope, we discover help and we discover direction and I believe we are inspired to keep going. We're still filled with God's Spirit, empowered by God's Spirit. And as we set out on this journey of engaging afresh with the life of Jesus, this missing middle, I hope and pray that we honestly will discover that his life is so much more than a comma. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we do give you thanks for Jesus. And even in this one incident, we can make connections. We can relate. Jesus relates to us. And so I pray that as we begin this series, as we work our way through Luke's gospel, and as we connect and engage again with the life of Jesus, that we will discover so much that will help us as we seek to follow him as we seek to pick up our crosses, as we seek to deny ourselves and walk as Jesus walked. And so for those tonight who are wrestling with this whole issue of temptation and the pressure to compromise, I pray that through your example, Jesus, we would find a way forward and a way through. But recognize it that is almost going to be a daily experience. And therefore encourage us, enable us to engage regularly with God's word. And again, God, we do thank you for your living, active, dynamic, and powerful word that still speaks into our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.